Thank you, guys. Man, this is crowded up here now. Good morning. morning. You guys doing good? All right, good. Um, Have you noticed... Goodbye, Ricky. (laughs) Have you noticed that uh, it seems like everybody's kind of angry these days? (laughs) Have you picked up on this? Okay, this is not just me, right? Like, you cannot look at any form of social media these days without someone yelling at you, right? You, um, every time you turn on the news, what you see is marches and protests and various kinds of things like that. And it would be one thing if it was like it was in the 60s when all of the protests were against the war and all that sort of thing. But now there's protests about everything. I mean, Everybody on every side seems to be mad at everybody on the other side, and there is just an angst in our society. There is a frustration. There are marches and parades and rallies and riots and every kind of thing you can imagine. People are carrying signs. And so um, some, some of the signs are, are just spewing hatred, right? And then some of them are just funny, right? So I, I picked out a couple of funny ones. Um, I thought they were funny anyway. <laughs> Everybody's going nuts around this guy. He's a little upset. Okay, what about the next one? <laughs> See, that would be me at one of these rallies. I'm just like, let me think of something stupid to say that will make people laugh. And I, I think I have one more that I, I really related to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was, you know, the, the funny thing, you can't really see it on the screen, but the, the guy behind him in a unicorn hat, he has a sign that says, God hates ponies. <laughs> so, so I just, I love the sort of social commentary in these signs, because basically what I hear people saying is, listen, uh, calm down, everybody, Right. Um, I, I'm going to be marching around with a sign, and I'm, I'm just trying to bring some levity to your life. Um, but, uh, but, but a lot of the signs are serious. A lot of the signs are angry. Um, a lot of the signs are hateful. And uh, again, it's not just one certain group of people that have hateful signs. It, does, it seems to not matter what sort of a rally it is. There are going to be hateful signs, hateful slogans, hateful chants. Um, there's a lot of anger out there. And, and, and sometimes you even see signs and slogans and rallies that are about hate in the name of God. I, I, I went on Google just looking for you know, signs at rallies. And there's a whole bunch of them that just say, God hates, you fill in the blank. You're going to hell God's disgusted with you. You're a loser. In the name of God, hatred. So, and, and, and you don't have to go to a march or a rally. All you have to do is open up your Twitter feed, check Instagram. It, it's all there. And then in this age of expression of anger, the church is the people of God. What should our sign say? 
I mean, if, if the body of Christ was to hold a rally and wave a banner, what banner do we march under? Because, because based on a lot of the media coverage I have seen, the banner that we seem to march under is a banner of anger and hatred and um, political division and all of that kind of stuff. But as I read the scripture, that's not what I see of God's church. What banner are we supposed to be marching under? Last week, um, we, we got to the section of this series. We've been doing, if you're new around here, we've been doing a series of messages called Better Together. And the idea of this is that, you know, the scripture tells us that God takes us as individual followers of Jesus and he puts us together in the church. And the church is, is called many things in scripture, the family of God, the body of Christ. But whatever you call the church, the bottom line is that it's not about the individuals, it's about God. And then the individuals come together as representative of God, right? And so if that's the case, then... What is our mission? Because we, we said, one God, one body, one mission. What's our mission? And, and to many of you, 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 could, you could get the right answer on the quiz to that question. What is the church's mission? You've heard it. You could tell me where the passages are. You know the answer that the pastor is looking for when he asks that question. But let me just make sure we're all on the same page. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, okay? So in, in the book of Matthew, you get the whole story of Jesus, his ministry, his teaching, all of that all the way through the crucifixion and the resurrection. We've gotten through all of that as we get to the last chapter of the book of Matthew, which is Matthew chapter 28. And when we get to the very end, Jesus uh, has some great last words for his followers. And these are the last words that Matthew records for us that Jesus spoke to his followers. We're going to pick it up in verse 18, the very end of the, of the gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, his followers, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, he says, I am God, you better listen to me. This is the risen Christ. He, he wants to be absolutely clear before he tells them what he's about to tell them, that he speaks with absolute and total authority. In other words, you are not allowed to dismiss what I am about to say and still call yourself a follower of Jesus, okay? And then he says this, Go therefore, verse 19, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we have the sister passage to this in Acts chapter 1. So turn a few books to the right. After you go through Mark, Luke, and John, you come to Acts. Go to Acts chapter 1. So that's where Matthew closes his story. Luke in the book of Acts picks up his story at the same place. And he has some other... These are, these are literally the last words we have recorded of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. And as he stands there with his followers surrounding him, he says this, verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses 
both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. In other words, Jesus says, your role as the body of Christ, your role as my church is to keep telling my story. Your role is to be witnesses to who I am. Your role is to share with others the truth about the life-changing power of God and eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. So we are to make disciples of all nations. We are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, wherever you are moving outward from there, you are to be my witnesses. Now, I know that to most of you, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've ever read your Bible, you've been to church very much, you already know these things. This is not something that you're hearing for the first time going, wow, why didn't anybody tell me this before? Our job is to continue the work of Christ. That's why when we, when we go to the book of Acts, we are not seeing the end of Christ's work. We're seeing the continuation of Christ's work. It just continues through us now. We become his hands to reach out and touch people. We become his feet to go to faraway places and minister to people. So Peter and John, after receiving this commission, after receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, did exactly what they had seen Jesus doing a thousand times. Remember, they've been with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. And they had watched him. And, and John tells us in his gospel that he's only recorded just the tiniest little bit of the story of what Jesus did. He says, if I told you everything, there wouldn't be enough books to hold all of the words to talk about what Jesus did, right? And, and they were there. And they watched him. And so what they did after receiving this commission, after receiving the Holy Spirit, was they just continued doing what he was doing. They shared the love of God by meeting needs. And we talked about this last week, all of this by way of recap. We talked about this last week. We were in Acts chapter 3, and we saw that there was this man that uh, needed to be healed, and he was there at the temple, and they healed him, and a whole bunch of stuff happened. He was 40 years old. He was born disabled. He was severely disabled, and he had been disabled his entire life, and every day they sat him by the gate of the temple so that when people came by for prayer, they would give alms. And as you remember from last week... Peter and John noticed him. And and the people that went into the temple every day, they knew him. They knew all about him. Well, they probably didn't know his name. They probably didn't know about his family or his interests or uh, his passions or the things he cared about, but they knew who he was. He was that crippled guy. It tells us. They all knew him as the guy who used to sit by the side of the gate and beg. It was his identity in their eyes. They they saw him as a broken beggar. And most of them did what most of us do. They, They walked past him because they were on their way to something. But his identity in their eyes was that he was this broken beggar. But for the first time, perhaps, Peter and John noticed him. 
For the first time, perhaps, they looked beyond his brokenness and they saw something in his eyes and they stopped and they encountered him and they began to deal with him as a human being. And as a human being, they said to him, listen, we don't have what you're asking for, but I think we have something better. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And they lifted him up and he jumped up and his legs were strengthened and he was immediately healed. See, in everybody's eyes, his identity was just a broken beggar, just a useless waste of space. But in God's eyes, he was precious. And now he began to find his identity in God. And so he's rejoicing, and so he is leaping, and so he is shouting as we see him there in Acts chapter 3. Uh, and that day he became a blood-bought, spirit-filled child of God. He was healed physically, but that was only symbolic of the inner healing that took place in his life as he became a follower of God. It's amazing how people come to open up to God when they just meet some people who act like God. It's amazing how much people will open up to God when they meet somebody who acts like God. It was an amazing moment. This man, this man gets healed and saved, and some 5,000 other men get saved that day too. And the church is growing and everybody is rejoicing and it is a party in Jerusalem and people are praising God and shouting amen and singing and dancing and there is an absolute celebration on the steps of the temple and everybody is rejoicing. Well, not everybody. Go to Acts chapter 4. We'll pick up the story there. All of this is happening in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. We drop into that story right in that place. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now listen, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Not just Jesus' resurrection, anybody's resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe that there's any life after death. These are Jewish priests, and it's a sect of priests who believe that when you die, it's done. And the point is just to know God in this life and make the most of your relationship with God in this life and honor Him in this life, and when you die, it's over. So these guys are preaching that Jesus has risen, and if Jesus has risen, we can be risen as well, and the Sadducees freak out. And the priests, the, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people, they show up with the temple guard. These are soldiers who are armed. These are the guys who came and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and dragged him off to his crucifixion. And they all show up and suddenly what was a celebration is starting to turn, starting to look like it may turn into a riot. Because they were greatly disturbed, it says, because they were teaching the resurrection. Verse 3, and they, the, the temple guard, laid hands on them, Peter and John, and the, and the man who had been healed, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number came to be about 5,000. 
How many of you know that just because you're serving God and blessing people, that doesn't mean your life's going to be easy? Right? If, if some preacher somewhere or some book you read somewhere or some bumper sticker you saw somewhere gave you the idea that being a follower of Jesus means that life becomes easy for you, that it's just a matter of receiving all the blessings and enjoying it, if somebody taught you that, you have been misled. Because the scripture is absolutely clear. There is joy in the Lord. Somebody say Amen right? There is peace. There is hope. There is all of the fruit of the Spirit. All of that comes in the Lord. Don't misunderstand me. It is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to know Jesus. And there's a peace that comes that no matter what your circumstances are, you can still be at peace. No matter what is done to you, you can still be filled with joy. That is the wonder of being filled with the Holy Spirit and born again. It's an amazing, fabulous thing. But that doesn't mean that just because you you have joy and just because you have patience doesn't mean that you don't have anything to endure. These guys were just doing what Jesus told them to do. And I wonder sometimes, how come we as Christians, why don't I do a better job of just doing what Jesus told me to do? And when I really honestly break it down, I think part of the reason is this. It's scary to do what Jesus tells you to do. It's difficult to, to, to reach out and love like Jesus loves. It, it is risky to give like Jesus gives. And so when we begin to live like Jesus, there is going to be some pushback. Listen, church, as the children of God, we are on mission together. We don't do this thing alone, but we had sure better link arms and hold on because what God has called us to do is counter to everything that comes easily to us and everything that comes naturally to us and frankly, everything that our world system wants to put up with. That means if we're in this together and we're on God's mission together, we are together the hands and feet of Jesus. We need to be about the, G, the business that Jesus was about. We need to continue carrying out what he began carrying out, whether it's easy or not, whether it's costly or not, whether it's fun or not, we need to do it. That's what we're here for. There is no other reason that I can come up with that Jesus would save a person and then leave them in this world except to make an impact for him in this world. He shines through us. Remember, I know I'm the most repetitive preacher in the world. As soon as you start getting what I'm saying, I'll say something else. But for now, let me just say this again. We are the light of the world. Jesus, when he walked on the earth, he was the light of the world. He came into a dark world and he shone and people noticed him. They didn't notice him so much as the light. They noticed the light. They noticed his impact. They noticed the difference and they flocked to him as a result of it. And then before he left, he said to his followers, you are now the light of the world. If his light is going to shine, it's going to shine through us. That's what we're here for. Meeting needs. That's what they did that day in the temple gate. They met a need. 
They said, I, I don't have what you're asking for, but what I have, I'll give to you. They met a need. We're here to share love. They, they expressed the love of Jesus to this guy whose, own, whose whole identity had simply been in his brokenness. And they expressed the love of Jesus to this man and said, you know what? God notices you. He knows your name. He cares about your situation. And he's going to do something for you. And they spoke the truth. Peter just stood up. He said, Here's com- here comes a crowd. I'm going to preach. And he stood up and he preached the gospel and people heard it and they were transformed. They were introducing people to Jesus. That's the role of the church. But sometimes serving God boldly can get you in trouble. Peter and John got arrested this day. They went straight to jail. Now I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you've ever spent even a night in jail, you know that's not a pleasant thing. That is a scary situation. Now, imagine, imagine that you get wrongly accused of something. They knock on your door. They pick you up. You look like the guy on the wanted poster. and They take you off and you go spend the night in jail. And you are, you are not a hardened criminal. This is not your thing. You don't know what to do. You don't know the rules. You don't know the culture. All you do is sit with your back to the corner and try not to bother anybody, right? Because you are terrified. Now multiply that about a hundred times because this same group had just arrested Jesus a few weeks before and they saw what happened to him. And now they're sitting in jail. That was what they got for acting like Jesus. Paul, we we start to read Paul's story and we go, my goodness, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was whipped, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by a viper, and ultimately he was beheaded. Why? Because he dared to be the hands and feet of Jesus. He dared to continue the work that Jesus began. All I'm saying is sometimes it's costly. Jesus himself said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And the cross only had one meaning to people in those days. It meant gruesome, brutal death. So church, when you start looking at at this kind of danger, there's a couple things you can do. One is you can just shrivel up. You can shrink back. You can decide you're not going to be a part of that and you're just going to do your me and Jesus thing and you're not going to be light and you're not going to be salt and you're not going to upset anybody's apple cart. You're going to stay safe and you can just back up. You can do that. Another thing that you might be tempted to do would be to grab a weapon and get in the fight. You might be tempted to get out there and see whoever you see as the enemy You might be tempted to grab a sign that says God hates fill in the blank and you might be tempted to get out there and make sure that everybody knows which side you're on and what you're against and what you don't believe in and who you don't like. Guys, let me just tell you something. The world is no longer confused about what we Christians don't like. They know what we're against. But do they know the Jesus that we're for? So, so you can shrink back and not be a part of the fray, or you can jump in with fist doubled up, or you can continue the work of Jesus, meeting needs, sharing love, speaking the truth, and changing the world.
2015, Pastor Hyun-soo Lim traveled to North Korea for the hundredth time. He was a pastor of a church in Toronto, and they had started sponsoring an orphanage and a nursing home in North Korea. Now, hopefully, things are beginning to change in North Korea. We see possible beginnings of flutterings, a possible change. I hope you're praying for that, by the way. I hope you just lay your politics aside, whatever you think about that, and you just pray for those broken, hurting people who desperately need freedom. But there are people starving in North Korea, lots of them. The situation in North Korea is so bad, it is beyond what you've seen anywhere else. And Pastor Lim had had received the um, paperwork so that he could travel in and out of North Korea. That's a very rare thing for a Westerner. And he would go and he would bring supplies and he would minister to people. And he had literally been there over a hundred times as of 2015. And when he arrived, he was arrested and charged with criminals against, uh, crimes against the state. And he was sentenced immediately to death. No trial, no representation, no explanation of his charges, crimes against the state, death penalty. Eventually, because of pressure that was put on them by the West, they changed his death sentence to uh, life at hard labor. Here's what he said. From the first day of my detainment to the day I was released, I ate 2,757 meals in isolation by myself. It was difficult to see when and how this entire ordeal would end. During the winter, I had to dig holes that measured one meter wide and one meter deep. The ground was frozen. The mud was so hard that it took two days to dig one hole. It was incredibly challenging. My upper body was sweating. My fingers and toes were frostbitten. I also worked inside a coal storage facility breaking apart coal, he said. He was hospitalized on four different occasions for up to two months at a time. The rest of the time, he was either working at hard labor or he was in some sort of solitary confinement. So what did he do with the time that he had? It says he read the Bible in English and Korean five times. He memorized more than 700 Bible verses and worshiped alone on 130 Sundays. Quote, while I was laboring, I prayed without ceasing, he said. He said his moments of discouragement, resentment, and grumbling turned into courage, joy, and thanksgiving. In an answer to those prayers, and the prayers of Christians around the world, Pastor Lim was released in 2017, and he was returned to Toronto, where he continues to lead a prayer ministry for the people of North Korea. Sometimes, serving God by loving people can be costly. What do we do when God calls us to make sacrifices in the name of Christ? What do we do? How do we, how do we even respond to such a thing? Well, let's go back to Acts 4. We'll pick it up in verse 5 and see if there's an example for us. 
On the next day, this is after they spend the night in jail. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there. And Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. So they gathered the heavy hitters. This is the court for the Jewish people. They get the high priest. This is the guy who tried Jesus. They get the father-in-law of the high priest who is really the, 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 fig, the, the other guy's a figurehead. This is the guy with the power, Caiaphas. They bring him in. They bring in the other people of high priestly descent and they get the entire Sanhedrin together for a meeting. Verse 7, when they had placed them, these, these prisoners, Peter, John, and, and the man whose name we still don't know, in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. So all the bigwigs are there, all the guys with power. These are the ones who had Jesus put to death just weeks before. Peter and John had seen what happens when you go up against these guys. They knew what kind of power they wielded. But they had also seen the risen Christ. See, guys, if, if we just stay focused on the cost, if we just stay focused on, on the potential pushback, we're going to shrink back or we're going to fight. But if we remember that although Christ was taken to the cross, although Christ did give up his life, on the third day, church, he rose again. Let's not forget, we serve a risen Lord. We serve a king with great and immense and infinite power. We serve the one who is sovereign in the universe. What can mere men do to us? We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Now, first thing I want you to notice as we look at this story unfolding is that there seems to be a theme developing here in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, when they're all just waiting and praying and there's the sound of the violent rushing wind, at that moment, the followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that point forward, this becomes the story of what the Holy Spirit can do through a church that is surrendered to God. And so they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up and preaches in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. In Acts 3, when the people are gathered around the man who had been healed, Peter, still filled with the Holy Spirit, shared the love of God with people, preached the word of God, and the number of believers came to be about 5,000. And now standing before the men who just weeks before had killed their Lord, Peter is still filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. 
It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, took his stand and said, and he once again speaks the truth boldly. Church, when are we going to understand that when we fully surrender to Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, he can change the world through us? And what happens next is one of my favorite sections in the entire Bible. I love this story. Look what happens next. Pick it up in verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, let's just stop there for a second. I want you to compare that to the mission that we read earlier. Jesus commanded them. He said, all authority has been given to me, and now this command I give to you, go and make disciples of all nations right? Jesus commanded them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. You will spread out from Jerusalem to all of Judea, even across to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses. That's a command. And now they stand before these men. Now these are not small men. These are men with actual authority. These are men with actual power. And these men command them. It said, when, verse 18, when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Why not? Why couldn't they? Because Jesus had commanded them. Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Because their lives now were about continuing the ministry of Jesus. They could not stop. And, and I love how respectful they are. And, I, and, and they basically said, listen, you're welcome to judge us for this if you need to. If you decide to punish us for this, we won't resist you. But just one thing you need to know, whatever happens, we're going to obey God rather than you. Verse 21, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was performed. I just want you to notice something. Verse 13, let's go back and read it again. Now as they, the council, the men with the power, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, somehow they were not quaking in their boots. 
Somehow they were not running away. Somehow they weren't fighting. Somehow they weren't arguing. They were just confident. And when they recognized the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. These are the same guys that were with him. I recognize them. I I, I recognize that confidence. I recognize that attitude. That attitude that says, listen, I'm not here to disrespect you. I'm not here to dishonor you. I'm not here to put you down and make you feel bad. I'm I'm not here to start a fight. I'm just here to follow Jesus. I'm just here to love people. I'm just here to meet needs. I'm just here to share truth. I'm just here to give life. They noticed that in them. They said, I see Jesus in these guys. But the thing I want you to see is that they were uneducated and untrained men. See, some of us think we could never be used by God. We just know we're not, we're not on the starting lineup. We're not the people that God uses. We're not the ones that change lives. We, we don't understand. I don't even, how many times have I talked to somebody who said, you know, I, I really, I don't like to tell people about Jesus because what if they ask a question I don't have an answer to and I feel stupid and I don't want Jesus to look bad and so I just don't say anything. I don't have the training. I don't have the education. I don't have the background. I don't even have the spiritual gifts to do this. So I just sort of, I just sort of pray for people and sit back. Some of us think we can never be used by God. But what was Peter's story? He was a fisherman who had failed Jesus again and again and again. You know the stories, right? He was a fisherman who had failed Jesus. He had never been to seminary, by the way. He had no degrees. He didn't have any ecclesiastical robes. He didn't have any letters after his name. He was just Peter, the big, dumb fisherman. Same guy we see in the Gospels, right? Only difference, as we pointed out last week, now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. What was his qualification? It says right in verse 13, they recognized them as having been with Jesus. He had been with Jesus. Jesus had rubbed off on him. Jesus had transformed him. Jesus was still in the process of molding and shaping him. The attitudes of Jesus had had become the attitudes of Peter. The heart of Jesus had become the heart of Peter. And he had been with Jesus. Let me tell you something. If God can use Peter and John to change the world, then he most certainly can use you and me. God can use us to change the world. But it wasn't just Peter that God was using. It was the other disciples. It was those people who were back in the upper room continuing to pray. If we continue reading the story, you can read it at home this week. As if we continue reading the end of chapter 4, we realize that they go back to those people and they say, you wouldn't believe what happened. And what do they do? They just stop and pray and say, oh God, don't let us shrink back, but fill us with boldness to love people the way you did, to share the gospel the way you did. It was those new believers <laughs> the, the ones who came to Christ on the day of Pentecost. 
The, the ones who saw the, the man healed outside of the temple and they, they had had their lives radically, immediately transformed, who had been born again, who went home and told their families, who went home and shared with their neighbors, who went home and let their lives be on display. They were light, they were salt, and the world saw it. And God changed the world through them. That's what God was doing back in the first century. And that's what, that's what God is doing today. What a blessing to be a part of the family of God, amen? What is your role? Prayer, giving, speaking up, encouraging, befriending someone, helping the hurting in some way, loving a child, just figuring out a way to meet a need. Remember last week, I gave you a homework assignment. I said, don't you come back here and tell me the dog ate your homework. The assignment was to somehow, some way, open your heart, open your eyes, open your mind. And somewhere across that, that week, just go out of your way to meet one need. Just meet a need that you wouldn't normally even notice. I wonder how many of us did it. The other day, uh, I, I came across a homeless couple and... Uh, I come across homeless people every day, just like you do. And um, to be honest, I didn't much notice, didn't much pay attention, didn't much think about it. And as I literally, literally turned and walked away from them, I just felt prompted in my heart. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to tell you. I didn't hear a voice from heaven. I just felt a sense in my heart and literally, it was like I heard my own voice in my head say, don't tell me your dog ate your homework. <laughs> and I thought, well, how do I help him? I, what do I even have here? And I realized I had some bottled water. So I went and got two bottles of water, went out, met them, introduced myself, and said, would you guys like some water? They nearly cried. They were having a breakfast of peanut butter and nothing to drink with peanut butter. I said, this is the best thing you could have given us. How weird is that? It's almost like God knew. To me, it was nothing to me, it was a small diversion. To me, it was a small thing. To them, it was a big, big deal. And somehow, it was a glimpse of Jesus. Because those small things turn out to be big things when God gets a hold of them and puts them together. God uses those small things to change the world. And God uses small people like you and me to change the world. We are his hands and feet. He wants to use us to meet needs. And don't tell me you have nothing to offer. And don't tell me you're uneducated and untrained. And let's not give God the well, I, that's not really my thing. The only qualifications of Peter and John was that they had been with Jesus. And so I ask you, Christian, have you been with Jesus? And if not, why not? Because 
people don't see Jesus in you because you drop by Jesus' building once a week. People don't recognize the transformation in your life just because you drive in the direction of a church once a week. Have you been with Jesus? Have you given him access to your life? Have you given him access to your mind? Have you given him access to your heart? Have you been reading his word? God never speaks to me. I don't know why these other people talk about God speaking to them. He never speaks to me. I don't even know what his voice sounds like. It's in the book. If you own a Bible, open it and he will speak to you. And then you begin to recognize his voice so that even when the book's not open, you hear. Have you been with Jesus? Have you experienced the kindness of Christ in your own life? Why not extend that kindness to others? Have you received gifts from God? The Bible tells us they weren't for you. They're meant to pass through you to others and then to pass through them to others and so on. Have you benefited personally from the grace of God? I, I find this troubling in my own life because it is amazing how much I appreciate the grace of God. I know who I am. I know what I deserve. And I know how good he's been to me. Not just mercy, but grace. He hasn't just relented on my punishment, but he's poured out upon me his gifts. And John, in John 1, it says, and he gives us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's like standing under the Niagara Falls of grace. I've been standing under the Niagara Falls of grace for 35 years. I appreciate the grace of God. But I'm surprised at how often I don't want to give it to others. And how often what I want to do is see others punished because they're bad guys. What I want to do is see others get what they deserve. And if we, the church, have been recipients of the grace of God, should it not be our role to reach out and extend that grace to others? Every now and then, I'll, I'll have a, a day, I'll be working in my office, and uh, I just get to the point where I can't get anything else done. My mind is just, I have ADD, I just need to move. And so, I'll just pack up my stuff, and I'll get in the car, and I'll start driving toward home, and I'll find uh, a Starbucks. Have you guys ever heard of Starbucks? <laughs> I'll find a Starbucks somewhere. And I'll just hole up at a table at a Starbucks. Maybe I'll have a cup of coffee. Maybe I won't. And I'll just work for another hour or two. And then I'll come home. And I walk in the front door. And my wife says to me, you were at Starbucks. <laughs> at first I thought she had like a GPS thing on my phone. <laughs> and that was scary. But she said, no... The moment you walk in the house, I can smell Starbucks on you. She's not talking my breath. She's talking my clothes. She's like, you smell like Starbucks. I don't get it. I can't smell it. I don't notice it. The moment I walk into the house, my coffee-hating wife <laughs> says, you, you've been to Starbucks. You smell like Starbucks. 
Guys, listen. When you've been with Jesus, you smell like Jesus. People notice. They can tell. They don't always know what it is, but they know it's different. They know it's not you. They know it's more than just what you bring to the table. And and I just want to ask you, do you smell like Jesus to people? Do you look like Jesus? Does your attitude remind them of Jesus? Because we're His church. We're His hands and His feet. That's the fourth time I've said that today. If we don't go with the gospel as His church, the gospel will not go. If we don't touch the hurting as his church, the hurting will not be touched by God. We are his hands and his feet. And so I want to encourage you to be with him this week. Don't take a class. Don't read a book except for the Bible. Just be with him. Just be with him. I encourage you to give him access to your heart like you've never done before. Don't ignore him. Don't resist him. I know there's some things he's been wanting to talk to you about for a while, and so you keep your distance because you're not ready to talk about those things. I'm just asking you, drop the shield. Give him access. Surrender to him. And filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be his hands and his feet and his voice to change the world. We are His church. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Father, humbly today we bow our heads before You, aware of our relative unworthiness, knowing that in spite of what you have done for us, Father, there have still been areas of our lives we haven't given you access to. Knowing that in the busyness of our schedule, crowded with all the things that are important to us, you don't always fit in. Knowing that our attitudes, therefore, don't always reflect you. Knowing that our heart doesn't even notice the things that you notice. God, We're imperfect. But we are your church. And you are perfect. And by your spirit, empower us. By your spirit, strengthen us. By your spirit, change us. By your spirit, transform us. That through us, you might transform the world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.